It's a good day to be with God's people together. Would you please turn to Matthew chapter 28? Matthew chapter 28 will be there in just a moment. If you don't have a Bible, that's cool. There's one in front of you if you'd care to follow along. Uh, otherwise, it will be on the screen here in just a moment. Well, for Amy and I, I want to tell you that Easter is our favorite holiday. For my wife and I, Easter is a big, big deal. And so when we became parents, we wanted to make Easter a big deal for our kiddos. And here's why. Because it's hard to compete with Christmas as far as big deal holidays go. Because at Christmas they get presents and there's lights and there's the whole city that kind of transforms and there's Santa and there's all this stuff. And Easter is a huge deal. Not that Christmas isn't great, but we were just thinking what are some ways that we could cultivate some of those kind of Christmas-like memories for our kids. And so here's the idea that we came up with that Amy had found. We do an Easter garden, and if you've been around our church long enough, you might have seen this a couple years ago, but we do an Easter garden, and what we do is we get a little bin, a little uh, bowl, and then on Good Friday, we go out into the yard and we fill it with a bunch of dirt. They run around, they get their fingernails dirty, their fingernails are still kind of dirty a week later right now, but they fill it with dirt, and then they go through the yard and they start plucking little grass blades and weeds, which is awesome because it kind of helps me a little bit and then they get sticks and they just fill out this little Easter garden and so then what they do is they grab some rocks and they make a little pathway in their little garden and the pathway leads to the most important piece of our Easter garden and that would be our tomb which is a russet potato that's the piece de resistance we get the potato there and what we do is we carve a little door in the potato and then we move that little door just so they can look inside a little bit of the tomb. This is what it looked like on Good Friday. It's beautiful, right? Emma and Nora put this together. They're excited about it. And then we talk about what happened on Good Friday all those years ago. And she talks about how sad it was that Jesus dies and so what happened is we leave this Easter garden in our house and we leave it on Holy Saturday. So they wake up Holy Saturday, they run out to look at their garden, and it doesn't look the same as it did the day before. In part because I took it at night without natural light, so that's kind of a bad composition as an iPhone photograph. But you'll notice it doesn't just look different because of how I took the picture. It looks different. Why? And we asked this of the girls. We said, what does it look like on Holy Saturday? After we had, you know, closed the tomb and talked about how Jesus died on the cross and they laid him in the tomb, what do you think his friends were thinking on Saturday? How were they feeling on Saturday? They said they probably felt sad. And then Nora goes, yeah, look, and these plants look sad. And Emma says, yes, the flower's drooping and the world is sad. And I said, you're right, the world was sad on Holy Saturday. Because we had a long day last Saturday, we're talking about this at night, so then we take our little five-year-old Emma and our little three-year-old Nora, and we say, okay, it's time for bed. And I kid you not, we're walking down the hallway, and Nora is slumped over her shoulders like this, and she goes, ooh, I hope him get out of that potato. <laughs> I'm so serious. And we're like, what? And we're dying because we started doing this because we thought Nora was old enough to understand this. And she wants him to get out of the potato. So I imagine we like send her to bed 
And she's thinking in her mind that Jesus is some tiny little fairy that we locked in a rotted potato (laughs) in our living room. And we're just laughing. We're going on and on like, are you serious? And so then Sunday morning, what we do is before they wake up, we take a bouquet of flowers and we cut the stems off and we dig out all the old and all the death and then we replace it with the brightest, gaudiest flowers we can find. So we set this on the table so that Sunday morning, both of the girls can scamper in and there's a few little goodies on either side of it, but they get to see their Easter garden as it's been made new, right? I kid you not, Nora Hope runs up to the table and the first thing out of her mouth on Easter Sunday morning was, Him got out! Him got out! Him got out indeed. Let us pray. Like, I almost want to say, like, let's try this together, folks. Him is risen, or him got out, him got out indeed. You with me? Let's try it one time just so I can tell Amy we did this. Him got out, him got out indeed. And Nora will hate me forever when she listens to this 20 years from now that I made fun of the way a three-year-old talks. We celebrate that he got out not just of a potato, but he was raised to life. He will no longer die again. And it's God's answer to the question of sin, death, and Satan. He says, no, that's not the final word. Yes, there is new life to be had in Jesus our King. That's what we celebrated last week. And we looked at Matthew chapter 28 on this powerful and dramatic way of the gospel's Easter garden about how Sunday there was this sense that everything had changed and a new beginning had dawned. And so we are going to read the last bit of Matthew's gospel, beginning in verse 16 through 20. Would you stand with me if you're willing and able? And let's read this very famous passage known by many Christians as the Great Commission. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may have a seat. This is the end of Matthew's gospel if you look at your Bibles on the page. And if you are a part of our church and you've been following along through the season of Lent, we've been reading the gospel of Matthew, yes? And we have just finished today this reading through the 40 days of Lent that is following Jesus' journey. And Jesus' journey, his life, his teaching, his healing, and even his death finds its climax in the resurrection. And so in most stories, that's when you think it's done, right? After the climax and the happy ending, you think everything concludes. And if you're reading the end of Matthew's gospel, you think that this is what's going on because it's the last words on the last page. But what's really happening here is not an ending, but it's a new beginning. There is this sense in which he is now the risen and reigning king. Even though the guards and the chief priests are going out and exchanging money to try to hush 
this incredible thing that's happened. But the thing is, Easter has created a new world under the life-giving reign of our risen King. So Easter isn't the end of the Jesus story, it's the new beginning. Last week on Easter Sunday, the first day of the week, we highlighted the fact that Matthew made sure to tell us when. At the first part of the first day, a new beginning, a new life has dawned. Something has changed because of the resurrection. I love this quote from Stanley Hauerwas. He's uh, still living, he's a a scholar, he's a, a commentator, and he says, to be Christian does not mean that we are to change the world, but rather that we must live as witnesses to the world that God has changed. So the pressure's off. The tomb is empty, God's changed the world, Our response is to live in that reality as witnesses to the fact that something new has begun in Easter. And then David Bosch, who is a late South African missiologist, says it this way. The central theme of our missionary message is that Christ has risen. And that, secondly and consequently, the church is called to live the resurrection life in where? The here and now. And to be a sign of contradiction against the forces of death and destruction. God has changed the world and our message is that Jesus is alive. And our lives are to be lived as the witness under the reign of our living king that death is not the end, that sin is not the end, that Satan has not won. Despite all evidence to the contrary, God's kingdom is still coming and God's king is alive. And we're to live in this reality. So if him got out of the potato, how are we supposed to live after Easter's new beginning? I think Matthew has some really powerful reminders to get us there, and we're going to see five of them tonight. I don't think I want to preview all of them, but we'll get there, okay? The first thing I want us to see is that we need to, as we live in light of this new beginning, we need to make room, if you'll go to that first, excuse me, first point, we need to make room for the not-yets. What do I mean by not yet? Let's look back in verses 16 and 17, and we've got to see a few things quickly. Then the 11 disciples, where do they go? They go to Galilee. It's right there if you get your Bibles open in verse 16. To the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. So we have 11 disciples, and we probably have even more disciples, which means that the women who we met last week who were the first witnesses to the risen Christ, did their jobs. They were sent, and these women were the first sent ones, the first apostles sent by the risen Christ to go and tell these 11 people, these 11 men who were scattered, who had abandoned Jesus, these 11 who were just hopeless. She was told to go and find these people and to bring them back to where it all began. And where it all began years before was in Galilee. These women went and told the eleven and probably more to show up at this place because Jesus said, you will see him. So they all gather together. And then when they see him in verse 17, some worshipped. 
some of the 11 and maybe more that were in the mix could not believe their eyes. What would you think if you go to this place, you've heard that there's this rendezvous to come, and you see Jesus when the last time you saw him was Friday when he was bloodied and tortured and you saw him from a distance and you had left. What are you thinking when you see Jesus back in Galilee? You are probably blown away. Or am I the only one that would lose my mind? Jesus had told them, but they still didn't get it. They still couldn't believe their eyes. But when they saw him, they worshiped. And that word is just bowed down. They were literally floored. But then I love what Matthew says in his honest candor. He says, but some, what? Doubted. Which gives me hope, and it should give you hope. And here's why I think they doubted. And that word there really would probably better use to say hesitated. And I can see some of the 11 hesitating when they see Jesus. Because what do you think they're feeling? Do you think they feel remorse or guilt because when the chips fell, they scattered? Do you think Peter was there and thinking at that moment, the last time I locked eyes with him, I had just denied him? Do you think that as they're seeing Jesus, they're wondering, wait, am I really seeing Jesus? These are the not yets. They are the not yet convinced that the tomb really is empty. They are the not yet convinced that he really has risen from the dead. They're the not yet free of their religious baggage that makes them feel like they've got to make everything right that how they wronged Jesus before they went back to him. And I just am seeing these people and I'm wondering how they're feeling, but I'm knowing that there's good news to be had here, and that is they are in relationship with the worshiping community. Because even though they're hesitating in coming to Jesus, they are still there alongside those who are worshiping. The worshipers and the hesitators were together and I'm just thinking about us as a church. Are we a church community that's hospitable to the not yet's? The not yet ready to take the next step in their life with God. The not yet ready to have it all together. The people who don't have jobs or skills or services that you can put on the bulletins and you can send out for mission work. Are we ready to be hospitable to the people who just don't have it together? And I hope you're shaking your heads yes because you don't have it together either. Because here I am, at any one day I'm a worshiper and at any other day I'm a hesitator and a doubter, am I not? Are you not? And I wonder if we would be hospitable not just to the not yets in our worship gatherings, are we hospitable in our living rooms? Amy, my wife, and I were talking this week in our neighborhood group how we've kind of woke up and realized that in this season of our lives we don't have as many meaningful relationships with not yets as we feel like we ought to. And here's a word of caution that Amy and I came to also. Don't call them not yets. <laughs> if you're a not yet here and I'm being unhospitable to you, please forgive me. Because I want to call you friend. I want to call you my brother. I want to call you my family member. Because these are the people in my living rooms that are not yets. These are people, not projects. 
But there is still this sense to live into the resurrection is to live our lives as new and markedly different in the way that we spend money, in the way that we love others, in the way that we eat with people, and the way that we just do our life together. And so we need to live our lives around the not yet, worshiping warts and all, to pray and to be present and to hope that they're not evers, but they're not yets. And when I think about those men and those women who are gathered together, I just think about the move from unbelief and fear to faith and joy is a long and winding and hesitant journey. You know, I thought of one woman that I know, her name is Candy, and she has an incredible story, and I want to tell the 10-second version of it real quick. I mean, basically, she is addicted to drugs and alcohol, and she is as far from Jesus as you could imagine. And she had a close friend of hers die of an overdose, and after the funeral, she's in a tanning bed, and she's thinking, and she's kind of half dozing, and she has this vivid image or vision of her friend that had just died saying to her, find Jesus. And this is hilarious because the way she tells it, I couldn't find him if you gave me a GPS. She had no idea. But she was so marked and moved by this that she threw open the tanning bed and she ran out the door, and this is late at night in Mesquite, and she found the first church she happened to, bang on the door, and an old man deacon opens the door and says, can I help you? And she says, I need to find Jesus. He said, well, come in and let's see if we can find him. And I thought that's so awesome that that guy was there because he just, in a few words, basically they pray and boom. 30 years after that night, she has never had a relapse and she was liberated from her addiction. And let me tell you, as somebody who's known about addiction, this does not happen very often or really ever. And she's liberated from her addiction and she gives her life to Jesus and it's this whoom. But I know way more stories like my other friend who we'll call Dave, it's not his real name, who for 30 years was kind of in and around, skidding around churches, but was a convinced atheist, but was just around Christians. And then 30 years he just happened to wake up and he happened to look into the mirror and he thought, you know, I'm a pretty complex individual to be created without a creator. Lord, I, I, I just want to give my life to you. And that's how unceremoniously he crossed over. Because any move from death to life is a miracle. Whether it's Candy 30 years ago, boom. Or whether it's Dave after 30 years of the still small nudges and leanings, there is still... A miracle to be had anytime someone crosses over from death to life. And what did my two friends have in common? What did these doubters and hesitators and worshipers have in common? You see that in verse 18 in the next words. And I love, 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 love this so much. Here's what they had in common. Jesus came to them. And I love when I'm reading the Gospels to try to fill in the blanks of what I hope I know about Jesus to ask the question, how do you think he came to them? Do you think he came to the doubters and said, get over here. Get over here and bow down and worship me. Do you think he was like that strict father that says, no, come on, you gotta do this, shape up. 
Or do you think Jesus came to them with eyes full of mercy and compassion and some kind of smile that says, yes, I really am making all things new? He came to them. He came to the ones who had lost hope and now they see Jesus. He came to the ones who were scattered and now he's regathering them in the place where it all started. And he came to the ones that were told in John's gospel had thrown away their hopes and picked up their nets and said, well, I guess that was fun, but I guess I'm a fisherman now. But he's regathering them and saying, no, 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 no. I'm resending you to go fish for people. It's so incredible. And he's sending them and he can send you and here's why. Because the second thing we see of how to live in this new beginning of Easter is we live under the life-giving love of the reigning and risen King. Jesus says, all authority, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. There's two things here. This authority was given to him and then this authority was enlarged. Every space of heaven and earth Jesus has authority over. Now let me ask you this Bible question for you Bible folk. You think Jesus had authority when he was healing and teaching and walking the streets of Galilee and Jerusalem? You think he had authority? Yeah. Matthew, in fact, since we just read this whole gospel as a church, Matthew tells us all the time he had authority. He had authority over demons. He had authority over sickness. God had given him some authority. But here's what happens now. God has given him all authority. And this language sounds so similar to this uh, passage that Jesus had quoted and hinted at for years and weeks. And it's found in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 to 14. You don't have to turn there, it's on your screen. But see if this sounds familiar. Let's look. He says, I hope it's there because otherwise I'm going to have to turn to it. Ready? What do we think? Okay. Whoops. That's probably my fault. In Daniel 7, 13 to 14. Daniel says, I continued to watch, and in my vision I looked, and there was one like a son of man. Jesus is always going on about he's a son of man. Coming with the clouds of heaven, and he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. I don't know what the mystical timeline is here, but you can imagine after the victory of the cross over sin and death and Satan, Jesus comes to the Father And presents himself to him. And then verse 14 says this. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Why did Jesus come? To bring God's kingdom. What did the cross and the resurrection accomplish? that he became king. And he became a king that would never die again. He became a king that would never be tempted or swayed to do all the wrong kinds of things that kings do because how he became king is so crucial. Jesus became king through humility. Jesus became king through sacrifice, not violence, not tyranny. He became king through love. Now write down, think, Philippians 2. One of the earliest hymns that Paul grabs hold of to talk about how Jesus has become the reigning Lord, that all authority has been given to him. He says this, he took the whole thing and he left it all and he became obedient. He became a slave, he became a man, and he became obedient to death on a cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him 
and gave him the name above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Jesus didn't just come to earth to die as if everything else that happened in the Gospels doesn't mean a lick of difference. Jesus came to break in the kingdom of God and he has become God's king and he says all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. With what? Your authority and your power? No, his authority and his power. And therefore, go. Don't miss this. Because a universal king launches a universal mission. So he tells us, because I have all authority, because I have all power, therefore, get out there and invite everyone under this reign of life. And the third reminder of how we live after the new beginning of Easter is this. We need to go and make disciples, not wait for them to show up and just take a little spiritual nugget on their way out the door. We need to go and make, not wait and take. He's told to make what? Disciples. Disciples of Jesus are called to make other disciples of Jesus. So what is a disciple? A disciple, and you'll see it there on the screen, this is what we say all the time in our church. Discipleship is being with Jesus to learn from Jesus how to live like Jesus. So you want to know what a disciple is? You don't need a seminary degree. You don't need to be a scholar. You need to be an apprentice. You need somebody who is with Jesus to learn from Jesus how to go and do what Jesus does. One of the failures of the American church is we've substituted this go and make and craft in relationship and life disciples. We've substituted that for wait for them to show up on Saturday or Sunday and hope they get something out of your preacher. Let me tell you, if your discipleship regimen is on one person, you, or two people, you and me, or Pastor Kathy or Robin, whoever's preaching, you're missing out. This is not the abundant life that Jesus has given and is offering to you. Jesus is offering himself to you. He says, come to me, and then come follow me. If your experience of discipleship is for one hour of a worship experience and then you go about your life, is one hour of anything going to change your life? How many other hours in the week do you have? The American church is so anemic, I believe, because we traded our call to go to where people are and we expect them to come to us. And if we have the right lights and the right sound and the cool shirts and the cool skits, then people will be entertained and it's more like going to a movie than it is a culture of being with Jesus and being with the people of Jesus to learn in community, to be equipped in community, to then go and show the world what it looks like when God is in charge. I'm not knocking our worship gatherings, but they should function more like pep rallies to what God is up to in our neighborhoods throughout the week, not the soul intake. You don't eat once a week. I hope you're eating more. We're to go and make disciples. Well, how do you make a disciple? You adopt them into the family name through baptism, and then you teach them the family way. That's what he says. You see that in the text? In that uh, verse 19, you go and make disciples, and you baptize them. I love this because what it really says is, into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This past week, I was so privileged to go and be at the courthouse with the Orans who made official the adoption of Boston after two years. 
It was a beautiful, beautiful thing. And so I think it's really powerful because when I think about who Jesus tells us to baptize, he tells us to baptize disciples. And I thought that Boston, you know, in some ways it was a little bit anticlimactic because we've already known Boston. We've loved Boston. They've seen him. Now, it was still powerful and it was still beautiful, but in some ways it's like, dude, we're just making official what's already happened. And I believe that that's what baptism is about too. Juju has been going on and on about being baptized for several months. Not because she thinks it's a cool thing to do, but because there's something that's compelling her to say, I want to make public what has happened to me in private. And that is, I love Jesus. He is with me. He, I can talk to him when I have difficult days. And so what we're doing tonight is we're making the adoption official. And it's so powerful because how many of you have been to or grown up in a Catholic or Episcopalian tradition? I grew up in an Episcopal church and my grandparents are Catholics. Do you know where they put their baptistries? It's not up here as, as the Baptists do. Because this says something too. I love that it's up here in Baptist churches because when we do it, we want everybody to see and celebrate, right? It says something about where the baptistry is. Where the Catholics and Episcopals put their baptistry would be right there under that clock that I'm looking at to make sure I don't preach all night. They put it at the front. And here's what they do when they walk in. They come in the front doors and they dip their fingers into the water and they do the sign of the cross and then you know where they walk? They walk into where all of you lovely people are sitting. And it's a way of reminding them that when they come from out there, in here, they do so through the waters of baptism. Isn't that powerful? We're baptizing disciples into the family name, and we're continuing to teach them to obey and this is so cool because these disciples that Jesus is telling this to in our text here, they were the ones who called Jesus teacher. And now he's saying, you go, you go and teach. And isn't this the rhythm that we had already seen in the Gospels? Hey, you've seen me do this, now you go out and try to do it. And then they go and they're like, whoa, that was, that was nuts, man. And he kind of gets the feedback and he kind of says a little bit something else. And then what does he do? He sends them out again. Then they come back and like, whoa, this is pretty wild, man. And we have this rhythm of being with, to learn from, then to go out and do ourselves. This is what a disciple is. And we don't need all of these theories. We need to go and live a life that is against the contradiction of sin, death, and destruction. That's what it means to be Easter people. We need to be Easter people, not philosophers. Jesus did not write a book with a lot of great ideas. He left us a life lived well. And he's inviting us to live with him. So we're called to make disciples, not just to wait for them to show up and then give them a little something on their way out the door. So who are we supposed to make disciples of? You see that, and this is our fourth reminder as we draw down to the end. We leave no room for discrimination in discipleship. Everyone's invited because Jesus said... Go to the people that look like you, that think like you, and read the same books as you, and listen to the same music as you. Uh, go basically just, just make another Judaism. Just go make another fan club for you 2 or whatever. Or fill in the blank. I don't know. What do people like now? <laughs> I got a bunch of weird stuff. What? What did you say? Don't listen to what Bud says. Should we go and make clicks? 
We go and make disciples of all nations. That word is peoples, which means ethnicities, cultures, colors, backgrounds, and even them because the Christians for the first two generations were known as the people that loved and cared for enemies. Jesus has rezoned our neighborhood is what we say in this church. And my heart's desire is we would come to look more and more like our neighborhood and to branch out to different people who want to worship differently than we worship. And would we just not be hospitable? Would we be accommodating and embracing? This is where the rubber meets the road. Would we welcome those people? And we have. Our church, I'm so grateful, we have this on the socioeconomic stratosphere. We have this a little bit more in age, but I want to see a kingdom church that looks more and more like our streets and our neighborhoods and more and more like the diversity that we will still see when heavens and earth becomes one in fullness. Do you know that what we just read in Daniel, all tribes and peoples were worshiping and it said peoples in their own tongues? Do you know that in the throne room scenes in Revelation, you can still identify diversity? So to pretend like we can just like say, well, we don't see color, I think that is ridiculous, and we've seen that fail in a generation before. We need to celebrate, and we need to diversify in such a way where we're not programming it, but in such a way where we're embracing it. Because it should look more like a salad where it's all together and it's still individual pieces and parts. Amy made some kind of wild salad today. And we don't pretend like it should all be the same monochromatic and we should all get fit into the same mold. No, we should look more and more like the kingdom. And let me tell you, I'm super excited. We're partnering with Freeman Heights because they get it too. But we've just got to keep living into this reality that says, look, you can hold hands and break bread with this person and that person. And when I say everybody's invited, I mean everybody's invited. Gay, straight, together with their stuff, not together with that stuff, in need or wanting to give, everybody's invited. Everybody's invited, period. And they're all given the same message. Come to Jesus live under his reign, and let's see what he can do for you and for our community as we partner together to go and look more and more like this kingdom that's come. Jesus was so clear about this, but the church was so slow about this. Paul would take it up in the next generation, and he says, I'm the ambassadors to the nations. But he's still got to write letters saying, you Jews and you Greeks, y'all better get your stuff together and work it out. This is what we just talked about in James. This is what we talked about in Ephesians. And guess what? Centuries later, we're still segregated in worship. Dr. Martin Luther King said it 50 years ago, and it's still true today. 11 o'clock on Sunday or 5 o'clock on Saturday can still be the most segregated hour in the week unless we live into the resurrection, unless we take this message to all nations. He's rezoned our neighborhood. Everybody's welcome. Everybody's in. Could we be a church that's not just hospitable, but embracing? And I believe we will do so if we lean into this final point. And Jesus says, look, I'm giving this to your hands, but I'm not leaving you alone. He'll give them the Holy Spirit who will indwell them and empower them and equip them and gift them. But Jesus goes with them too. He says, and behold, I am with you, even to the end. We go with God with us. If you flip back in your Bibles, 
This is in the last chapter. If you go to the very first chapter in Matthew 1, 22 to 23, when Jesus was being born, there was a prophecy that Matthew plucked out of Isaiah and said, this is what's going on. The virgin will conceive and give birth to his son and they will call him what? Which means God with us. John 1, Jesus became flesh and blood and he moved into the neighborhood. And even after the resurrection and ascension, he still hasn't moved out. In this new beginning, he is with you. He is with you when you blow it. And he's asking you to get back up. He is with you when you are afraid. And he's saying, I am your refuge. He is with you when you don't know the way. He says, I am your shepherd. He is with you when you can't drum it up and when you can't work it out and you can't, when it's impossible, he says, I am the resurrection and the life and even death, I'm with you. And even though like Peter and Paul and Jesus and every single one of them, even though they face suffering, they know that they do it with God. I just want to close with this reminder from our unhurried retreat we had the privilege to bring in Alan Fadling, who wrote a book called An Unhurried Life. He's a friend of our church, and he came from California, and he did a weekend, a quick weekend, in which he talked about recovering Jesus' rhythms of work and rest. And one of the exercises that he did for us is he went through and he says, okay, take a big piece of paper, and on one column I want you to write your to-do list. Y'all remember this exercise? Write your to-do list. Write everything you got to do this week. And he could just see everybody in the room going, oh, this sucks. Sorry, I just said sucks. But there is this collective sense of like, dude, I'm at this retreat. This stinks. And he said, okay, now that you've gone through your to-do list, now I want you to do an experiment. I want you to take two words, and on the other side of that column, next to every single bullet point you wrote out, I want you to write two words, with God. Man, I've got to go to this meeting with God. Oh my gosh, I've got this doctor's appointment this week with God. I've got to deal with my children. I've got to manage my kids with God. Oh, whoops, maybe I shouldn't have said manage and deal with. That was my, that was, that was my thing. What would it mean to be with God, to live life with God? God. That is, wherever Jesus is, there's a chance for a new beginning. So may we go with him in his authority to make disciples of all people. And may we do so in the power and the presence of our risen Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful for the promise and reminder that you are with us even to the end. So Lord, would you be with us in this moment? With us as we celebrate, with us as we listen, listen as we listen to you, listen as we come to the table. Would we meet with you because you are already here? So Lord, maybe what I should ask is would we be awake to it? Would we be Easter people who go and make learners, apprentices, so that we might partner with you in our co-mission, the mission that you began, would we just live into that as a church and as your people? Would you keep us awake to the reality of the risen King? We pray all this in the name of Jesus, the name above every name. Amen.
As God has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit and go in peace.